1: for free, at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. i Truth. I'm I'm I'm, I'm I'm I'm
0: Unforbidden. Truth. I'm 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 I'm, 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 I'm. forbidden. Welcome to Unforbidden Truth, I'm Andrew. This is part one of a two-part interview with Nebraska spree killer, Nico Jenkins. Nico was born September 16th, 1986, to David McGee and Lori Jenkins. Nico had a troubled childhood, being witness and victim to many traumatic events, first being hospitalized at the age of just eight years old. He had been in and out of juvenile detention and state care and mental health facilities starting at a young age. He suffered from anxiety, nightmares, and terrors due to what was going on at home and was eventually removed from the household and placed into foster care. Leading up until he turned 18, Nico spent quite a bit of time behind bars for various charges and mental health reasons. In 2003, after serving time in a youth detention facility, Nico was convicted of two armed carjackings. While in prison, he was charged with being a part of a riot in 2006 and assaulting a guard while on a furlough for his grandmother's funeral. Nico was released from prison after serving 10 and a half years, less than a month after being out on parole. Omaha would be gripped in fear from August 11th to the 21st, when Juan Urban Peña, Jorge Cajiga Ruiz, Curtis Bradford, and Andrea Kruger were killed in seemingly random attacks. On August 11th, 2011, a patrol officer discovered two bodies in a white pickup truck that was parked near a city swimming pool at 18 and F Street in Spring Lake Park. The two victims had been identified as Juan and Jorge. Both had been shot in the head, and their pockets had been turned inside out. The two men were lured there by two girls, Erica Jenkins, Nico's sister, and Nico's cousin, Christine Baudu, on the pretenses of having sex. On August 19th, around 7am, the body of Curtis Bradford was found outside of a detached garage by a man returning home from a night shift at a convenience store. Curtis was shot in the back twice. It later came out that Curtis and Nico posed for a photo that was posted on Facebook a day before the murder occurred. Curtis was the only victim that was familiar to the Jenkins family. The fourth and final victim was Andrea Kruger. Her body was discovered on August 21st, around 2.15 a.m. by a deputy sheriff that had responded to a shots fired call. Her body was laying in the road with multiple 12-gauge shotgun wounds to her face, neck, and shoulder. She'd been on her way home from a bartending shift. Surveillance footage showed Andrea locking up the bar at 1.47 a.m. At 6.30 p.m. that night, Andrea's gold 2012 Chevrolet Traverse SUV was found abandoned 12 miles away. On August 30th, 2013, Nico was arrested on unrelated charges of terroristic threats. By the time he was arrested, evidence started to mount against him, Investigators had an image of a female associate on surveillance footage at a local gun shop buying the same type of ammunition, which was 12-gauge shotgun deer slugs, that had been used in the killings. Investigators gathered more video evidence, from cameras that were placed along the route to Andrea Kruger's abandoned SUV. On September 3rd, Nico confessed to the four murders during an eight-hour rambling confession, rationalizing the murders to be a sacrifice of, to Apophis, the ancient Egyptian demon of chaos, whom had the form of a serpent. He was charged with four counts of first-degree murder following the confession, and handwritten letters dated November 3, 2013, submitted to the Omaha World Herald, prosecutors and a judge, Nico said that he wanted to plead guilty to the four murders. He would protect Apophis's kingdom with animalistic, savage brutality. In February 2014, he filed a federal lawsuit seeking $24.5 million from the state of Nebraska for wrongfully releasing him from prison and that his claims of hearing voices from Apophis were ignored. In a six-page handwritten filing, he stated being kept in solitary confinement was exacerbating his mental health. He put blame on corrections officials for the four killings. Nico claimed that his problems were caused by mental illness and that he had schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. The judge had ordered a psychiatric evaluation. The psychiatrist concluded that he had antisocial personality disorder and he was faking psychotic symptoms. After he was declared competent to stand trial, the legal proceedings continued. Nico represented himself at trial under guidance from his advisory attorneys. Throughout the entire trial, he claimed that he was under the commands of Apophis. He had many outbursts, speaking in tongues, howling, and laughing while prosecutors explained details of the victim's death. On April 16, 2014, Nico Jenkins was found guilty of the four homicides. He was originally scheduled to be sentenced on August 11, 2014. The sentencing was delayed to determine whether Nico was capable of understanding the death penalty proceedings against him. On July 29, Judge Battalion ordered him to be housed at the Lincoln Regional Center Psychiatric Hospital until hospital staff were satisfied with his condition. In May 2017, Nico Jenkins was sentenced to death, plus received an additional 450 years in prison on weapons charges connected to the four murders. On April 20th, 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear Nico's appeal. Here's part one of my interview with spree killer Nico Jenkins. Where were you born? I was
1: born in Denver, Colorado. And I moved to Omaha when I was like three years old. So I don't remember nothing about Denver.
0: Can you recall the first positive memory you had as a child?
1: First positive memories was of my mother always spoiling me. Like I was my mom's only son out of five children. So she always um, went out of her way to spoil me and give me what I want. So I can just remember just getting toys that I wanted when I was like a little kid for my birthday. Stuff like that. I loved Ninja Turtles when I was a little kid, so she used to buy me everything Ninja Turtles, like the pajamas, the blanket sheets, and uh, toys, and you know, just the little costumes, everything. That's basically the first memory I can
0: remember. What about your first negative memory as a child?
1: Probably was uh, childhood abuse when I was getting abused, um, getting uh, stomped in the ground in my head, and uh, with stitching cords and thrown stairs and stuff like that. And I was that happening like when I was three and five years old. But I I don't want to say who did it to me though, know, just because it was it was it was uh, in my family. But I just don't feel comfortable saying who who did it because I don't want to you know put them in a bad, negative light, but it happened, though.
0: Was that all the extent of the abuse, or was there more that went on in the household?
1: Basically, yeah, that was it.
0: Were your parents together while you were growing up?
1: Yeah, my mom and my dad was together until about, until I was turned about like eight years old or seven years old, something like that. But it was kind of bad because my father was diagnosed with schizophrenia and uh, bipolar disorder as well. So he he would have a lot of smooth swings and outbursts. And then he was uh, drinking a lot. He used to alcohol and drink. So it made him kind of violent towards my mother. And
0: Did you witness those mood swings and everything that, that he would you know, be reacted yeah, out?
1: Were you, yeah, were you
0: there to witness that? Yeah, I
1: witnessed yeah I witnessed that stuff, and like my dad um he um, he used to you know do illegal things to get money and stuff like that, but um I just witnessed a lot of like like a lot of violence, a lot of fighting a lot of a lot of assault on people people getting assaulted, people getting hurt, I had to clean up blood from the floor, and like just seeing people getting hurt from the time you' a little kid. From like the age of three and five and up until the like adolescent.
0: Is that just from all the criminal activity that was going on in the family?
1: I was forced, more so forced to do it because they. that's just the way, how it was. And it just was a part of normal life to me because I didn't know nothing else.
0: Were you close with your mother, Lori, growing up?
1: Yes, I'm a mama's boy to my heart, man, through and through. I love my mom, and I, shit, I slept in the bed with my mom since I was twelve. <laughs> I'm a mama's boy, and I'm I'm real close with my mother, really close did with she, my mother.
0: Did she have any type of mental illnesses or anything?
1: No, not that I know of, not, not that she's being documented or nothing.
0: How many siblings do you have?
1: I have, um, four from my mother, four sisters from my mother, and then I have a brother and two brothers and two sisters from my father's,
0: uh,
1: uh, previous relationships.
0: Were you close with many of them growing up, your siblings?
1: Yeah, my big brother came down here since I was like seven, six years old, so I was close with uh, David McGee Jr., he's my dad's junior. You know, growing up, he was always there for me, he always looked out for me, he taught me a lot of things,
0: and just was there for me growing up. We've talked a little bit about mental illness, but can you talk about everything that you've been diagnosed with to date?
1: Schizoaffected bipolar type effective means basically that I'm a schizophrenic with a mood disorder. So I have the worstest diagnosis that uh, someone can suffer from because of the. Basically, I have to be treated. Like, even me taking my antipsychotic injections and I'm refusing to take mood stabilizers, I still have episodes, psychotic episodes of mutilation of myself and like um, outbursts of uh, verbal uh, psychotic episodes like rants and stuff because of my mood swings. So basically, yeah, that's what it is. that's what schizoaffective bipolar type means that I'm a schizophrenic
0: with a mood disorder. When were you diagnosed?
1: Since about 2009.
0: How old were you then? Uh,
1: 35 now. 2009 was what 10, to I was like 22, 23, 22.
0: What was your behavior like as a child growing up?
1: It's since the time of being um uh, being a little child, like I remember having uh psychotic episodes, like having uh voice commands things telling me to do things bad and, like everything that I did in my history in my childhood like I started fires I did arson I would steal I would assault people like the things that I would do I was doing everything off of voice command. like even I stabbed my sister Sophia my oldest sister when I was 12 years old off of a voice command in her knee I stabbed her in her knee But, like, I can remember even back then, like, she would tell you, like, if you asked her, if she was to do this interview, she would tell you that I didn't, we didn't fight or anything. We didn't have any kind of disagreement. I just came in there and just stabbed her and left. once I got older, they revealed themselves as demons. But, like, back then, it was just voices in my head that told me to do stuff. And I didn't know what they were. Like, I used to even, like kill animals like mutilate squirrels and rabbits and stuff and like uh and gouge their eyeballs out and stab them in their stomach and pull their guts out and carry them around the neighborhood and uh clear trash bags and scare the kids on the bus stop like i didn't even want to do it but the voices was telling me to do it and like they would kids would get off of the bus like these were like junior high and high school kids and they would be scared and like it was just like I can remember like even stuff that I used to do like that like just very uh very uh disturbing abnormal type thing that you can tell this was after I got out of the hospital too so because I was in a psychiatric hospital when I was eight years old and I got committed
0: for 14 days what was that experience like for you
1: For me, it was torture because like, I was getting, I was in emotional distress. So I was seeing more, I had more hallucinations and I was getting more voice commands. Like I see black spirits in my room, like, um, and I was hearing more voice commands and stuff like that. And I was like, beating myself up. And that was the first time I started having uh, self-harming behaviors where I started hitting myself and pulling my hair and stuff. And
0: this was as a child?
1: Yeah, this was at eight years old when I got committed to uh, Richard Young at Methodist Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska.
0: Were you just physically violent towards everybody? Were you just out of control, or was it just something that was, like, blown out of proportion at the time? No, that was
1: that was very true. Like, I was basically um, having a lot of psychotic episodes and, uh, because I was facing— that abuse, that physical abuse, and basically, you know, I've done extensive research into neurology and um, the catecholamine neurotransmitters where the region of the brain of the hypothalamus where where mental illness lies is believed to lie in a neuropextrin uh, catecholamine neurotransmitter and cortisol is the stress hormone. So basically, when I was being abused, when you get hurt or you get any kind of Uh, experience any kind of discomfort in your life or distress, the stress hormone cortisol begins to secrete. So I think that the chemical stimulation of the cortisol was being absorbed into my catecholamine and my neurotransmitters and causing my mental illness to disrupt. And that that high level of cortisol stress hormone was causing my, my brain to try to recompensate and secrete more um, epinephrine and norepinephrine. These are excitatory secreting uh, neurotransmitters. So it's like adrenaline. So like they ba- like basically that's what was causing me to have these 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 outbursts because I had so much adrenaline coursing through my veins and then I had the stress hormone and I was depressed, I was getting beat, I was, you know, forced to do criminal stuff because of my demons or the voices back then they would like the demons would scare me at nighttime like that's why I was so scared at night always like as a child like because like if I didn't do enough bad stuff during the day the demons and stuff would tell me they're going to get me at night and I would literally feel them touching me like touching me and shocking me you know making me pee on myself like touching like I could feel it and like, I used to tell my mom all the time when I was young, when I used to see him and I used to feel them, and and nobody would believe me, you know, but I was still like, man, it was just, it was so real to me though.
0: Were you telling anybody else besides your mother at the time?
1: Yes, my Aunt Cordella Carter, she raised me. She, you when know, my mother was working. Um, this was my dad's sister. David McGee's sister. Her name was Cordella McGee, but she got married, so her name changed to Carter. And um, she raised me, and she was. Those were all my childhood memories that were positive and good. Like she never yelled at me, never whooped me. Um, you know, uh, she just loved me and treated me good. My aunt, my aunt is the one who got me my mom has sent me to the hospital because my aunt was mentally ill too. She had um, schizophrenia as well, I mean bipolar disorder as well. And uh, my dad and my aunt, because my my mental illness comes from my dad's side of my family. So yeah, they told my mom that I should, I should should get committed to the hospital and that I should, she should get help for me. And like she did, my mom did. My mom was always trying to get help for me, man. Like even before I got out of prison, um, my mother filed a, a a petition with Johnson County Attorney to for the Board of Mental Health to review me and in, in a commitment to a psychiatric hospital, but they never did because the the prison system lied about the the prison psychologist Mark Waters lied and withheld my evaluations and my records so that I wouldn't get committed. But my mother tried. She tried to get me civilly committed. She did everything she could do as a as a citizen to do it, but they just they got sabotage.
0: Can you tell me about Apopsis and the goddesses that you see Apophis. or and or here, You know, and does that date back to childhood?
1: Well, back then I didn't know their names. I didn't know their names. I just knew that they were voices but then once i got like 21 22 when i was in solitary confinement and then they revealed themselves to me and then they told me the demons and stuff and they told me that they've been my whole life and they've been monitoring me and telling me that i'm their sacred king and that i'm supposed to resurrect the uh the kingdom of hot ships with queen hot ships with egyptian queen because i guess she was like the first egyptian queen that was a witch like she used to work, uh, she was of the grimoire and of the underworld. And they said that she was believed to to control the demons. And they say that the demons tell me that I'm her, I have sacred Egyptian royalty bloodline of that kingdom of Queen Hashishu, 1453 BC. And I started doing blood rituals, blood magic, and stuff like that, and worshiping her.
0: When did you first start hearing the voices of these spirits, which you said were later demons and later these gods or goddesses? Oh, uh, so
1: I heard them as a kid, as a kid, as a kid, So since I was like five years old, from the earliest time that I can remember.
0: What was it like the first time you heard it? It was, it was scary. It was scary because it was at nighttime
1: and I was, I was outside in the nighttime playing. And then it got dark and then I started hearing things like I thought there was somebody hiding in the dumpster because we stayed in an apartment complex and I thought there was somebody hiding in the dumpster. And I looked into the dumpster, I climbed up the uh, side of the fence and looked into the dumpster and was looking around the dumpster and I didn't see anybody, but I was hearing the voice clear. And that's when I got scared and I told my mom that was the first time, but she brushed it off. And then I was telling my dad and my 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 family, my sisters, and they just all just were saying, stop playing make-believe games. They thought that I was just playing a make-believe game when
0: I first started telling them about it. Was that the norm during your childhood is there wasn't many people that believed what you were experiencing was real?
1: Well, up until eight years old, until I got eight years old then I got committed to the hospital. Then that's when my mom, like after I got out of the hospital, I had nine months of psychotherapy sessions with a psychiatrist named Jane Dalkey out of Omaha, Nebraska. And um, I was under medication and um, she stated in my, 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 my second competency here in June 10th of 2014 that offered the same evaluations that you have in your possession she would have diagnosed you with a child form of bipolar if if she was ethically permitted to do so. But she said that in 1995, you couldn't diagnose children with bipolar disorder. It was unethical and unprofessional of a psychiatrist to do so because there was no neurological resonance imaging. That's like the MRI of the body. Uh, It's of the brain though. That's how they see the the disconnection from the right frontal lobe of the brain and, um, and the art of a chemical imbalance as well. So, yeah, she testified to that on the transcript. That's on the transcripts though that off of those same evaluations when I was eight years old, she was a bi-glotian with a child form of former bipolar. She was ethically permitted to do so.
0: So you go to this psychiatric hospital, you're eight, then you get out, and get eight months or so of therapy. What happens after that? Do they follow up or do they just let you slip through the cracks? What happened after that?
1: Basically, I slipped through the cracks. My mom stopped taking me. My mom stopped taking me because my dad was threatening my mom. My dad was threatening my mom because I was taking medication and the medication was making me more calm and more uh, relaxed. So- have as much high energy because usually when I would go to my father's I'd be very high energy and you know telling my dad about what I do at school and you know little things that I do because my dad was like he was like he would give me praise for negative actions so it made me want to be bad he would like if I would beat somebody up he would make me act out how I beat the kid up like and show him what I did to him and he'd be laughing like so he would he would constantly reinforce, you know, big, strong, aggressive, dominant, you know, be be be, be, be violent, be be dominant, you know what I mean? Like, so when I start taking the medication, the medication took that away. And so my dad thought that they were trying to kill me and thought they would poison me. So he basically was behind my mother to stop taking me. It stopped putting me under the medication. So basically out of
0: fear of my father, my mother stopped doing it. When did your criminal activity start, you know, as a child? Was it around eight or was it before then?
1: It was before eight. I took a, well, I took my mother's gun to school when I was in like the uh when I was in like the uh second grade for River City Roundup. What so kind of like, gun was it? It was like a 25, 25 pistol, twenty-five uh, millimeter. But um, um, that was like the first time. Besides, like shoplifting and stuff. And then after that, I got out of the hospital. It just got worse. It was like, um, you know, like arson and assaults, and you know, theft by receiving stolen cars and stuff, and. Just a lot of stuff that I was hanging around older kids, and you know, basically being influenced by them, Doing the older things that I should have been doing, but I was just very uh, ahead of my times. Like I always hung around all the adults, so I always acted older than I
0: was. Besides the carjacking, were there any other violent crimes that you were committed to when you were coming up as a teenager? Were they just petty, you know, like burglaries or shoplifting yeah, or yeah just pretty stuff just pretty stuff let's talk about the charges you caught when you were 16 how they came about and you know what the aftermath was and everything with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: That's one of the other things that's the same, same situation. The, um, the voice commands telling me to do this, those things and commit those crimes. And, and I was untreated from my mental illness. And I was just following the commands of the voices that was controlling me.
0: Do you remember specific things that these voices would say to get you to commit these crimes?
1: They would just tell me, like, things like, like this is what we need, you need to do this, this is what's going to make us uh, make us happy, we'll, we, we'll, uh, we'll be able to drive around and go do things and be able to go do this and go do that. Just little, it's just like little manipulation tactics they say to me that will just... Make me, because I was always, i always liked to drive. I always liked to drive when I was young and growing up. So uh, that was one of the things that kind of uh, interested me when they started saying that stuff.
0: Whenever you went and do things that you would hear, you know them telling you to do, you know, would that exacerbate anything and everything that was going on? You know, when you just ignored it It or or didn't didn't do so?
1: No, if if I didn't listen to them, they would just scream and yell loud. And then it would just drive me insane. Like, it would just drive me crazy. And I would just start saying everything that they're saying. And just my behavior would start getting weird. i start because I would be in such a frenzy and so agitated that I couldn't even talk to my mom. I couldn't even talk to my sisters that I would be very aggressive and violent towards my family and loved ones and friends and just everybody just because it, because I wasn't doing what they told me to do
0: and my mind was so disturbed. Those charges you caught when you were 16, were you charged as an adult?
1: Yes, I was charged as an adult. Uh, I actually did the crimes when I was 15 and I got charged for them at 16, three months 16 when I got arrested.
0: So were you were you being held in a in an adult jail or were you being held in juvie at the time of your trial and everything? I was in a, I was
1: in a Douglas County Youth Center and the juvenile detention center.
0: What age were you convicted? Let alone sentenced to prison and and you know showed up in prison? Well, um,
1: I was sentenced to prison at the age of sixteen. I went to prison at seventeen, so I was in prison from the time of seventeen.
0: Were you housed with other offenders? That mean you were a juvenile, or were you like segregated in PC? Or
1: well, in the state of, in the state of Nebraska, in the state of Nebraska, they have a like a youth prison. So like everybody there is under the age of like twenty. So, the people would be like from anywhere from fifteen to twenty years old. But the 20 and 19-year-olds were in a different mod, and then the younger, 18 and under, inmates were in a different mod. And I went to the adult prison at 19. They they sent me to the adult prison at 19 because in the state of Nebraska, you're an adult at that age.
0: How'd you spend your time in prison the first time?
1: Well, I used to get into riots and fights and assaulting guards and stuff like that. But basically, all of that violence and all of that stuff triggers um, my mental illness. And, I mean, it's, I mean, all of the violence is, is birthed from my, my psychotic uh, symptoms and my 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 untreated mental illness. Hold on a little fast. Let me grab something real quick. I'm grabbing my uh, – because they have an IMO, involuntary treatment medication, and I want to read to you what my psychologist says about that. It's crazy that you just bought that up. My psychologist from, from the prison system, name is Brandon Hollister, and he has to always submit a uh, like a narrative for why I should be on involuntary medication treatment. And it says, um, he says, I can actually send you these documents too. It says, danger to others is evidenced by, and then it says, gives the history, uh, It says, Mr. Jenkins presents with a significant history of aggressiveness and homicidal ideation related to mood and psychotic symptoms, and he has reduced his aggressiveness and homicidal ideation since initiation of an involuntary medication order in April of 2018. I recommend additional treatment with involuntary injectable antipsychotics to further reduce his agitation and delusional beliefs. About NDCS staff, especially as Mr. Jenkins has a history of medication noncompliance and he has failed to comply with voluntary oral psychiatric medications. The reason why I wanted to read that is because it's um it's it's it's, it's, an, it's another mental health professional, a psychologist, that says that my violence and my my aggressiveness and you know the homicidal ideations and all is because of my untreated mental illness but because i've been under my involuntary medication order i've been uh i've been doing well you know and i haven't hurt nobody or nothing like that and since i've been arrested you know but i still have those uh mutilation myself from time to time you know
0: because i struggle with that part of it was the forced injections was that a thing the first time you were in prison as well no, it wasn't.
1: That that was one of the reasons why that I, I if they that's what they should have done, because I don't want to take my medication. They should have put me on a uh, involuntary medication order like I am now.
0: Did you have any access to mental health services when you were in prison the first time? Yes, I, I had
1: access to it, but my doctor they moved me away from my doctor, and then the doctor that they had me at NSP before I got out said that I wasn't mentally ill. And I, she only met with me for like twenty minutes. Her name was like Dr. Cheryl Jack, but um, all of the other doctors that I ever ran across, Dr. Olivetto, Dr. Jane Dalkey, Dr. Bruce Gutnick, Dr. Martin Wetzel, Natalie Baker. I got the list goes on and on. I got like Dr. Taylor Over I got like six or seven, like almost ten psychiatrists and psychologists. They all come to the same conclusion. And these are different psychiatrists from different backgrounds and stuff.
0: How would you say your overall experience in prison the first time was?
1: Well, I was being mistreated and stuff like that. Like they would use uh pepper spray to spray me when I would not give them my my personal property and drag me out of my cell with a spit sock over my face and spray me with so much full of pepper spray that I would urinate on myself and they put me in a room They put me in a room with just a blanket and a mattress and the boxers and t-shirt and socks on my back with nothing else for like months at a time, literally, like three months at a time, I would be living like that.
0: So you're paroled on July 30th, 2013. Do you believe that you were prepared to be released into society?
1: Of course not. If you know my case. Um, you would understand that I didn't want to get out. And I told him that I didn't want to get out. But listen, man, let me break this down for you, man, because I want you to, I want this is what I want your listeners to know. This was a governmental Nebraska conspiracy against one man to deny him mental treatment based off of racism, based off of discrimination because of what I, who I was and I, I committed violent acts towards them in their prison system. Basically, my doctor was psychiatrist Natalie Baker. She diagnosed me five months before I was released in July of 2013 with schizoaffective bipolar type. She stated that Nico Jenkins is at this time mentally ill and dangerous and will be needing a civil commitment. And this dude named Mark Wallace was a psychologist. He wasn't even my psychologist, but he basically was the hitman that was hired by then. Nebraska Department of Correctional Services Director Robert Houston. He was hired as a hitman to 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 kill my civil commitment to the county attorney in Johnson County. My mother, Lori Jenkins, tried to file a civil commitment complaint with the Johnson County attorney. She did actually. This initiated this this Richard R. Smith dude, county attorney of Johnson County, where Council Prison is housed at. He called up here to the prison. He said, "Is Nico Jenkins is mentally ill and dangerous, the dude, Mark Wallace, this is all on transcript, man, September 18, 2014, in front of seven Nebraska Senators. This dude, Mark Wallace, got exposed and admitted that he withheld my psychiatric evaluation. He had the evaluation to say that I was nearly ill and dangerous and he affected by a but he said that he did not have it. He said that I was receiving mental health treatment and I wasn't. I was being held in 23-hour-day lockdown and I wasn't being treated. And then basically, this is where the conspiracy comes into play is because if he would have gave that report to the county attorney, uh, uh, Johnson County Attorney Richard R. Smith, I would have gotten of the Board of Mental Health and I would have committed myself. And this is what I want the public to know. This is what I want everybody to know about Rico Jenkins. If I could do this all over again and it wasn't a conspiracy about me getting the treatment that I deserve and getting it in front of the Board of Mental Health, these people would still be alive because I would have told them the mental health judge, Apocalypse wants me to be human sacrifice people. I don't wanna do this. I need treatment, I need to be in the hospital, two toilet papers. That's the guard I was doing a supply card. But um at least that's real and you at least you guys know I'm in prison. But um yeah. Um but like I said, I would have got myself committed. I would have got myself committed in this states in Nebraska law. I had the power to commit myself, man. But that's where the conspiracy came into play. And then they didn't give me any medication. They didn't put me on forced injections. They didn't give me no mental health treatment as far as therapy. They didn't need me to no therapists and no clinics. None of that. And then another thing, this is another thing that I want the public to know. Not only did they know that they were releasing a mentally ill and dangerous, psychotic, violent inmate, they called Omaha Police Department and told Omaha Police Department, Nico Jenkins is out today, he's getting out today, and he's most likely going to kill somebody or cause harm to somebody. They called the police and told Omaha Police this. And I know this because October 1st, 2013, at my preliminary hearing, Officer David Snyder, 1822 badge number, stated that under sworn oath testimony, this is in transcripts. So not only did they know what they were doing, it was was premeditated, because they called the police the same day that I got out. Who does that? You know that I'm really, really dangerous. So you know you're supposed to simply commit me to a hospital, so I'm not dangerous. You got a person begging for help, begging to get treatment, telling the system, I don't want to get out. This is what's going to happen. The, telling them my whole delusional system, Andrew. I'm telling them my whole delusional system, the whole thing, everything, human sacrifice, poppers, knock-out, sauce, kill and destroy, tattooing red ink on my face, all the things that they wanted me to do. Telling them everything. And they just ignored it. They just ignored it because they didn't want to treat me. They felt it was too much money.
0: When you did get out on parole, were you receiving mental health services, you know, the, the weeks prior to the the crimes that occurred that you're in prison for now?
1: No. They would just come by and, and ask me, like, are are you going to kill somebody? Are you suicidal? And I'd say no. And they just keep going. That's not treatment. So, no, I wasn't getting any treatment.
0: How were you spending your time the 2 weeks before everything happened after you were paroled?
1: Well, first I was I was uh, just going uh just going around visiting all my family that I missed like aunties, uncles, cousins, um working out at 24 hour fitness gyms. Um um uh, just spending time with my family stuff like that and just going through it like locking myself in a room with guns and just being uh, detached from reality.
0: Let's talk about August eleventh, two thousand thirteen. Can you tell me everything that you remember, starting out with how you started your day up until eleven fifty-nine p.m. that evening?
1: I don't. Only thing I can tell you is that basically I was sleeping during the daytime. I was not at night. And basically at nighttime, I'm just basically chanting in a psychotic, delusional state, chanting the demons, chanting Apophis, just ranting about human sacrifice and the war revelations is upon us, stuff like that. That's what my whole day is, is recycled of. So there is no experiencing things. And the only reason why I was working out, because that's a part of being a superior soldier, and being a superior soldier of Apophis that your body has to be in condition to, to destroy So, basically, that's what it was. And like from the crimes, I know what you're gonna ask me, from the crimes, I don't remember things during the crime. All I remember is what I was chanting and what I was hearing, my own voice of the demons in Apophis. And I can tell you that, but the beginning and the end is the only thing that I remember. It's what I was doing at the beginning and the end. That's all I remember.
0: Do you remember the end being that they were dead, or do you remember just was it not like that in in, in your mind?
1: No, I just at the end I, the end that I remember is that I just remember the that my my hand my hands were were like sweating, they were shaking, and just. I can just keep hearing the delusional voices like of the of of of, of the the system, my delusional system, the system that it goes like prophets like worshiping the pops like A-ka-ta-kuda-papas-a-la-zem-da-u-a-al-kua. A-ka-ta-kuda-papas-a-la-zem-da-u-a-al-kua. and then there's just repeating the names of the demons for all my life. Veriel, Asmorias, Hazaz, Sawte, Ta Kimachi, Kahune, Belchawood, Remos, Biros, Al Balzabal, Saratana Satanakiya, Faru Tebukal, Lilaflamia. It just keeps going on. Like that 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 cycle, like worshiping the Papas, the demons, the demons, and then them talking to me. Like that's that's basically what just keeps going on and repeating and repeating and repeating.
0: So you don't really remember how you got there or like how you ended up with the gun that day or anything of the sort you just remember the champion and everything
1: no i i I remember all that stuff but it's like to me that stuff is that stuff is not the the what this case is about what my purpose is of telling this story man is is my case is my case is to try to get help for other people that are mentally ill man people that are getting done wrong by the system and that are going to be released and the same thing can happen to them that happened to me and it's not about glorifying killings I don't, I don't want to glorify the killings. i don't want to glorify doing the things that these demons and evils and this mental illness get to me what my purpose is is to expose the governmental conspiracy behind what happened to me and get justice for myself because i'm supposed to be in a psychiatric hospital i'm not supposed to be in prison on death row You know what I mean? And I'll tell you though, like I said before, about each one of the murders, at the time of the killings, this is all going to come out. My girl cousin, Christine Bordeaux, she witnessed these murders and she's even saying it in the recording. She's telling the police, crying, telling them that Nico was talking in some other kind of language. That wasn't him. That wasn't him. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know what he was doing. He was always talking about sacrifice. That's all about to come out very soon. So everything that I'm saying now is going to make sense to people later. But the main thing is, the main concept is that I'm not the monster that this system tried to create through me. And they wanted me to be this way. They wanted me to be psychotic. They wanted me to be murderous. They wanted all of these things so they can try to pass new laws in the state of Nebraska when it comes to uh, felony sentences and all of that stuff, man. Just it's just crazy, because they start... As soon as I got arrested, like, the Senators used me to bring back the death penalty. They did all kind of stuff, man, like, in the state of Nebraska. Like, you know, they try to pass new laws to uh, make stiffer penalties for felonies and stuff like that, and good-time laws and take away our good-time laws. And they try to pass a lot of different things on my name, but it didn't happen because the conspiracy got composed, exposed.
0: In regards to the crimes that were committed, you said that the first two you didn't really have any recollection other than the voices and everything, right? Yeah. Was that the same with the other two as well?
1: Yes, it's the same same concept with each one because it's basically the what I told you about the uh, chanting of apophis and the demons. That's basically what I'm what I'm chanting, as it's happening like in my girl cousin christine bordeaux she told the police this in an interview crying to the police officers and that's that's one of the things that was ineffective counsel on my attorney because he failed to subpoena her to my death penalty trial and to put that in the evidence but i watched that dvd myself
0: and speaking of that of the co-defendants actually three of them were your family members right yeah are you able to talk about who played a part in what
1: no, I can't. I can't speak to those things because people's appeals are in and, uh, you know, my appeal and that's that, that could uh, directly affect that, you know, so I also uh, comfortable speaking about those type of things. But basically, you know, um, it's a lot of things that's in the media that's not true, man, that was spent around by the media and even the testimony that people that gave, that were involved, they only gave their testimony to save themselves and to, you know, so a lot of that stuff is not true.
0: What did the media get wrong?
1: They got basically all the stuff wrong, you know what I mean? Like they're trying to say that my mom bought bullets for me, that's not true, you know. Um, Just a lot of things that that are not true in my case, man. Um, Just. In general, like my sister Erica Jenkins, she was never with me on any of the murders. You know, um, they they try to say that, but she wasn't.
0: Do you think there's any misconceptions about you or your family, for that matter?
1: Yes, there's big misconceptions about the whole situation about what happened and how. Like I said, it was a governmental conspiracy against me to not get me mental health treatment and let me get sent sent to the hospital. And um, I I wanted to save people's lives, I and mean, they they took away my only opportunity that I had to save people's lives to get in front of the board of mental health and admit that apophis was consuming me and that these things were going to take place, and that would have got me sent to the hospital. There's actually Nebraska law seventy one dash uh, nine twenty five or nine twenty four, and uh, they it says it says that in law that. If I'm in front of the Board of Mental Health and if I admit to anything of being mentally ill and dangerous, then treatment must begin. Treatment must start, meaning you be at an inpatient treatment in this um Lincoln Regional Center in Nebraska State Psychiatric Hospital. So that was one of the, that was one of the reasons why the the government of the prison system conspired against commit uh Sending a psychologist to deflect the Richard R. Smith, the county attorney of Johnson County, they deflected him to file the Board of Mental Health Commitment because they knew that if he would have did that, I would have gotten in front of the Board of Mental Health and I had the power to commit myself, literally. Like, it doesn't even matter what doctors say. And that's the thing that I want people to know the most about me and my situation is that I would have admitted what was going on. I told everyone, like, I was writing to doctor's office, offices that I didn't even know, telling them everything that's going on, to the ombudsman, to state senators, to everyone. Like, I was telling them what's going on and telling them that I wasn't getting treatment and I wasn't getting help.
0: Do you think at the time, if you would have got mental health treatment and were taking medication and everything of the sort, that all this might have been prevented?
1: Oh of course. That's it, that's for sure. Everything would have been okay. I would've stabilized, I would have been okay. Like I'll give an example that like I'm I'm stable now and I'm nonviolent. But like before my prison sentence, before my ten and a half years before I got out on the five nine four seven eight, I was violent. I attacked guards, I attacked inmates, uh, I started riots. Um, I did a lot of things because I wasn't medicated and it was psychotic episodes. But now that I'm medicated, I have direct access to the guards every single day and other inmates, and I haven't hurt anybody since I've been arrested. That's because I'm under medication and I'm getting – I see my psychotherapist Monday through Friday, Brandon Hollister. He's a psychologist here at Tecumseh. He's the head psychologist in Tecumseh. I see him Monday through Friday. On, on psychotherapy sessions, so he checks in on me. He gives me a chance to vent frustrations, to tell him the voice commands what's going on, how everything's happening, and then I get this uh, this medication, this once a month injection, that's been helping me to be stable and now violent. And like you I think- said, I have direct access to the guards and to inmates every single day. I'm not in chains. I come and go as I please, and it's in and out of my cell.
0: Do you think anything and everything that you do there with the therapist and everything helps, you know, keep the voices away and any you know violent tendencies or anything that you might have?
1: Yes, that, the the treatment that I'm receiving right now is the treatment. The only things I have a discrepancy of is where I'm being housed at. I should be housed in a skilled nursing facility or the hospital, instead of being on a death row lot, But um, basically. Everything that's being done right now, I'm getting treatment that I should have got before. And that's the type of attention that I need, you know, from former psychologists, like in my psychotherapist, because that's what he gives me on the Monday through Friday. And sometimes he comes in on the weekends because he's a mental health OD. So he'll see me on
0: those days, too, sometimes. That was part one of my interview with Nico Jenkins. Thank you for listening. i Truth. I'm, I'm, i I'm. I'm. I'm, I'm. Truth I'm. Podcast I'm I'm I'm, I'm. I'm, I'm. Truth i podcast